And let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word, Lord. And um, Lord, we thank you how you challenge us and how you change us, Lord, even as we read it, Father. Whether we completely understand every detail or not, Father, there's something about reading the word of God, Lord, reading your word that, uh, Lord, it is true. Uh, it is a cleanser. It cleanses our heart and our mind. Our, it cleanses us, Lord, and we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, tonight that as we read and, and we see this, this incident of this Gentile woman from a very far distance, Lord, she comes and she wants to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Father, uh, would to God that, uh, Lord, we pray, actually, that, uh, Lord, that every time we open the word here, wherever the word is being taught, God, that there would be many people coming, even from afar, to hear it, Lord. It is worth, uh, more than worth, as we sang, Lord, to hear. It's more, it's everything to us, Lord. And thank you, Lord, that you are the living word of God. And Lord, you've come tonight to encourage and strengthen us, Lord, and we thank you for that. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, beginning in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9, uh, up to this point we've been looking at uh, Solomon's uh, reign. And Second Chronicles is very nice to Solomon, meaning... In 1 Kings, there was uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly concerning Solomon and his reign. And here in Chronicles, the chronicler has a very different focus uh, because the children of Israel, remember, were in, in Babylon and they had just come back after their 70-year captivity and they needed to know the, the comfort and, and, and just the, that God wasn't through with them. And so Ezra, who we believe is the one who compiled and wrote chronicles, he's encouraging the people because they have just been through 70 years of living in a pagan land and now they're coming back to their own land again and reestablishing the sacrifices and, and beginning to look at the word of God again, certainly having paid the, 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 you know, their, their servitude in a sense to Babylon and having learned many lessons and now Ezra, we believe, is wanting to encourage them. And so it's all about the kings of Judah. And it's all about the, 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 the priesthood and how they integrate. And, and all of these dark things that happened in Solomon's life, which we're going to look at tonight in review uh, as a warning to us. And also to encourage us that even the wisest man on the planet can fall from times from time to time. And I would encourage you that even though you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there are times that you may fall. And to know that God is not finished with you. Your own flesh, certainly the devil, will tell you that God is finished with you. And you are naturally, maybe feel guilty about whatever sin it is, maybe that you've been um, entertaining or perhaps just something out of the blue happened and you caved into it or you said or did something wrong and you know in your heart that it was wrong. And to know that as a believer, what, what is our recourse? What do we do in times like that? Do we just throw in the towel? We can't throw in the towel. You've been purchased with a price. 
God is not going to be done with you. What do we do? We confess it and we, uh, we come into agreement with God, what God said about it, and we move on, right? We get back up. A righteous man falls seven times, but seven times he gets back up again and he keeps going. And, and folks, tonight, if you're one of those Christians who is struggling and you, maybe you've fallen yourself, don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Unfortunately, you're in good company because many of the saints in the Bible had made horrible mistakes and yet they were forgiven and now they stand before us in the presence of Almighty God as you will one day in your new robe. Amen? <laughs> in your new body. So what I love about this chapter in, in Second Chronicles 9 is we see a woman coming from a very a Gentile nation very much to the south of Israel. And she comes, and, and she doesn't come just to see how much money Solomon has. She's heard in her own land, several hundreds of miles away, she's heard of this fame of Solomon about his wisdom that God had given him. And, and I love that, because here she comes all this way just to hear the wisdom of Solomon, perhaps in her own heart, struggling and wrestling with things, and now she wants to hear what God has to say and what this man that God has anointed with great wisdom. She comes all this way. Notice, not just to, that was the reason she came. She had heard about Solomon and she heard about how God had blessed him. And, and I think about that and I think about my own life. And I'm like, Lord, I, I pray that you do that with me. That you do that with us. That people would see how you've blessed us. They would see how much you've encouraged us and built us up, that they'd want to know more about this God that we serve. And I pray that my life, and your life too, is even more attractive to the world. They're not going to like the message that you share because it is an affront to the natural man. The natural man doesn't want to hear the fact that they have sinned against a holy God, that unless they repent, they are going to go to hell. Unless they are born again, they will not see the kingdom of God. They will not enter the kingdom of God. Man doesn't like to hear that. But it's a message. It's the most loving message in the world. And yet it comes with a sword, doesn't it? The sword is, I have sinned against a holy God. But what is the warm, comforting thing is that Jesus has paid the price for me. He has died in my place that I deserved. And see, that to me, is the sweetness of the gospel. But you must use both. You can't just give them the sweetness without the stuff that's really going to bring them to their end of themselves. Don't ever try to witness to somebody without, if you're going to give them the whole count, if you're going to give them the full gospel, you can't leave the sin issue out of it. But would to God that we, people would see that in our life and we'd be like, God, set me on fire. Help me to be that, that person that you can use. And let me open myself up to, Lord, whatever it is that you want to do so that when others see it, they're like, I got to have that. Why don't I have that? I've tried all my life to get to a place where I had peace in my heart, but all I found was solace at the bottom of a bottle or I, I found solace at uh, you know, snorting cocaine or taking drugs or having illicit relationships. How is it that you can have this peace, Christian? And there is our invitation. And may God make our lives like that. A witness to the world around us where they, they're like, we're going through the same thing as you are, but we don't have the peace that you have. And may they come to us like this queen of this area called Sheba, way down in the southern part of 
Saudi Arabia, what you and I would call Yemen. Yemen, right? She came from that place all the way to hear this, what God is doing in this man's life. May it be true of us. But let's look at verse 1. It says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test Solomon with hard questions. And the word hard questions literally means a puzzle or some conundrum or dark saying. So she came to test Solomon with hard questions, having a very great retinue, camels that bore spices, gold in abundance, and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him all that was in her heart. So here's a woman who come from a long distance with a lot of questions. And you know, I love it when people ask me questions. I just wish they would ask me questions. I don't get enough people asking me questions. Who is this God that you serve? What is the gospel? Who is Jesus Christ? What does this talk about the rapture? I've heard this even in secular circles. What does it mean? What does it mean about the, the tribulation and the end of the world and all of this stuff? What does it mean? Tell me. I want to know. I wish people were asking the questions. The fact that they're not is kind of disturbing. May God open the eyes and the hearts of our culture because they're so satisfied. They're so satisfied with the status quo. They're so satisfied with our culture that the devil has just got them blinded and their ears are shut and they have no other need. They feel like they have no need of anything, but they, they, they don't know what they don't know. They don't even know that they need. They don't even know what they need. And they certainly don't believe that there is, that not every person who's just a good person goes to heaven. Listen, you can be a really good person, but if you're not born again, you're not going to heaven. I'm sorry. And it's not my opinion. It's, it's what the Bible says. And the New Testament says that without the Spirit of God in you, you are none of His. You are not a Christian unless you are born again. That's what the Bible says. So this woman comes. She wants to know more. So the Queen of Sheba, she is mentioned by Jesus in the Gospel. And He referred to her as the Queen of the South, if you remember in the Gospel accounts. But Jesus was clearly referring to her and to this passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 9 as well as in the parallel account of this in 1 Kings chapter 10. And it was a time when Jesus mentioned her, Jesus was speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, and they were requesting, remember, to see a sign from him. And what did he tell them? He says, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. So the queen of the south is this queen of Sheba, and he puts it in context so we understand that this is what Jesus means. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. And Jesus is speaking of himself. A greater than Solomon is here. And so Jesus was here challenging the scribes and the Pharisees concerning their unbelief in Christ as being their Messiah, because even this Gentile queen who didn't really have the oracles, and she didn't have all of the readings in the synagogues every, every day to, to, to hear what they, had, what they had heard all their life. She comes out of nowhere and says, I've heard about this. I've heard about you, Solomon. I've heard about what God is doing. I want to know. 
And Sheba, this nation, again, is in southwest Arabia, possibly modern-day Yemen. Many Bible maps have this as a very probable location. Um, uh, you can see on the screen, there's a couple of different maps. The, right down here in this one, right down at the south of the, uh, uh, the Red Sea. Because um, up here is the Sinai Peninsula. But down here in modern-day Yemen is what we call Sheba. Um, in this map, they label it as Sheba in modern-day Yemen, and so there it is, right? And um, so Solomon, verse 2, she comes and he answers all of her questions. And there was nothing so difficult for Solomon that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, and the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters, and their apparel, his cupbearers, and their apparel, and his entryway by which he went to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Literally, there was no more breath in her. She was completely undone. Have you ever been in a situation where you've heard about something that was really great, and then you go and visit yourself, and you realize... It's even much greater than I thought. I mean, maybe you haven't been, experienced something like that, but it, it's really incredible when, or maybe they've downplayed it, and then you see it, you know, firsthand, and you're like, you're just, your breath is taken away. That's what happened here. And then she said to the king, it was a true report that I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe their words until I came and saw with my own eyes and indeed, the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. You exceed the fame of which, I, of which I heard. And again, may that be true of us, the church in America. I pray that that is so for us too. That the world will look upon us and say, there's something about you people. I don't like you. <laughs> you get on my nerves sometimes, Christians, but I... There's something about your, the timbre of your life that I just, it's irresistible. What is it? And of course, we know that it's Christ. It's the peace and the joy that we can have. How many of you have the peace and the joy of Christ? I mean, do you really have the peace? Do you know the peace? Have you, uh, are you so quickly letting your peace go by world events? Hey, listen, you've got to be really careful with the media and the things you're watching. Because it'll steal away everything that God wants to give to you. He wants to give you peace. He's got it covered. He's got it taken care of. You don't need to worry. You don't need to fear. But the media is designed to shock you and it'll rob you of your peace if you, if you let it. If you let it. Will you let it? When you lay your head on your pillow at night, what kind of peace do you have? I would encourage you to Spend time before your head hits the pillow and just spend some time with the Lord. Go somewhere quiet in your house. Read a few psalms. Pray, even for 5, 10, 15 minutes. Pray with your wife. Do whatever. Get alone and get away from all the noise. Turn off the phones, turn off the television, all that stuff. And let the Lord minister peace to you. Because that's something that's really absent I think a lot, even in the church today, because we're, we're so focused on other things rather than on Christ himself. 
May the Lord bless the church with this kind of testimony to the world around us. And that as people interface with us, as they learn and discover that we're not just a bunch of haters. You know, that's what the world thinks, that we're just a bunch of haters. They know what we're against, but they don't know what we're for. And, but rather, we're lovers of God. We're not haters. But love does tell the truth, doesn't it? And it's hard sometimes to, to come to grips with certain things. We have to tell the truth, and the truth often does hurt. If that's what it means to be a hater, then I guess that means to be a hater. You know, I told my, our daughter when she was real young, you know, she couldn't drive her big wheel in, in, in the middle of the road. Because cars would just come zinging by and they didn't have time to stop. And love says, I got to tell her, I got to discipline that action. Because if I don't, she's going to die. And that's what love does. And, and that's a physical death. Think about eternal death. Well, how is it that we should be warning people of this eternal death that's Im- impending upon every soul that has rejected Christ? That is the truth. We should never condone sin in our own lives or cave in and accept the morals and the ideals of our culture. We ought not to. But it's not easy to tell these things. But what does Paul tell us? As we interface with the world, there's no way to avoid that sting that light is to darkness. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. It's not until the Lord opens your eyes. Do you remember that day as you were an un, when you were an unbeliever and there was this wonderful time, a wonderful moment in your life where God, the, the Spirit of God, was, was coming alongside of you? You may not have known it at the time, but something ha- happened to cause you to say, you know what, I'm, I'm so sick of who I am. I don't want to live this life anymore. I, I, I got to get I, this trail I'm on is going to lead me to destruction. Lord, help me. And then he shows up and then you're wonderfully saved. And all of a sudden you have an appetite for the word of God. All of a sudden you want to be around God's people. All of a sudden you want to endure an hour of me speaking. <laughs> you're supposed to be laughing. Are you guys awake? All right. All right. Those are a few chuckles. But the natural man does not receive the things of God. They are spiritually discerned. And it's not until the Spirit of God enlightens your heart to make you aware of it even. And isn't it a wonderful thing? What a mystery. So she goes on and she says to Solomon, Happy are your men and happy are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God. She literally said, Blessed be Jehovah your Elohim who delighted in you, setting you on his throne to be king for the Lord Yahweh, your God, Elohim, because your God has loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. And it is amazing how much about God she understood in making this statement in that verse. She understand that she understood, excuse me, that God is sovereign, he's a sovereign God, and she also understood or at least comprehended the plan that God had for his people Israel because she's quoting the very thing that God had spoken to David in the covenant that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this was a Gentile queen. Wow. Amazing. Would to God that those in the ivory towers like Harvard and other Ivy League universities, the media, our own town and federal and state governments, would, would to God that they had this understanding like she did. She understood 
And she didn't just dismiss it. She felt drawn to Solomon, the, the God that Solomon worshipped, the God that Solomon at that time was living for and obeying. And notice in verse 9, and she gave the king, she gave, this queen of Sheba gave to Solomon 120 talents of gold, spices in great abundance, and precious stones. There never were any spices such as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. You know how much gold 120 talents is? It's about 9,000 pounds. It's like four and a half tons. You know what that's worth in today's currency? $293,760,000 she brought to Solomon. Verse 10, also the servants of Hiram. We know Hiram, he's the king of Tyre, right? In the area of uh, Lebanon today. Also the servants of Hiram and the servants of Solomon who brought gold from Ophir brought algam wood and precious stones. And the king made walkways of the algam wood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house. Notice also harps and stringed instruments for singers. Remember David, when he was reigning, he um, invented musical instruments to accompany those sacrifices. It became the first time that music really began to take a more prominent role in, the, in Israel's worship. And Solomon continues in that vein by also making harps and new harps and new stringed instruments for singers. And there was none such as these seen before in the land of Judah. So he took what his father did and continued to even make it even better. And now King Solomon, verse 12, gave to the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, much more than she had brought to the king. Isn't that amazing? King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all she desired, all that she came for, answering her hard questions, fellowshipping with her, whatever she asked, and much more than she had brought to the king. So she came with all of this stuff and gave it to Solomon, and Solomon gave her much, much more in return. So she turned and went to her own country. So she comes and she goes even further south, those few hundred miles back to where she lived, she and her servants. She left with more than she had brought. I like this because it seems fitting, doesn't it? For anyone who comes to the believer. May it, again, may it be true of us that when we have visitors or guests that they leave our home with more than what they came in with. And I'm not speaking necessarily of something physical or tangible, but certainly concerning wisdom and genuine hospitality and love and grace. When they come to your home, what do they leave with? Do they leave more bummed out than when they came? Or when you invite somebody into your house, are you hospitable to them? Are you speaking of the things of God, encouraging them, loving on them, showing them how important they are? And I think that's important today because hospitality in the Middle Eastern culture from the very beginning was very well established. And for some reason in our country... We've just lost that art of hospitality. We no longer ask people over to our homes anymore. And what do we talk about when we have them? Do we talk about sports? Do we, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but what is the focus of the gathering together? Is it to talk about politics? Is it to talk about the things in the country? And, and believe me, it's so easy for me to get caught up in those things. But, you know, what do we gather for? It, it ought to be 
What is God doing in your life? Well, what is God doing in your life? Well, let me tell you what God is doing, how he's challenging me. Well, then the, the conversation goes, and all of a sudden, it, light is being introduced to light, and it just it flame, and the flame is being, uh, you know, it's like starting a fire at a campfire. And then now you have this really sweet gathering, and it really is sweet when those things happen. There's nothing worse than going over to someone's house, and all you do is argue and bicker about politics all night. I'd rather stay home. I need to be encouraged, don't you? There's nothing wrong with those things in their places, but you know, let's keep the main thing the main thing when we gather in our homes together, when we spend time with each other. Try to do that. And it's something that I need to purpose to do because sometimes I don't purpose enough to do it. But it's worth doing, and it's something we should be doing, right? Now, in uh, verse 13, it talks about Solomon's great wealth. It says, The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Does that number ring a bell to anybody? 666? (laughs) I don't think that there's any... uh, It's kind of interesting that that's exactly what it was. 666 talents of gold, 25 tons, 50,000 pounds... In U.S. dollars, that would be one trillion, one billion six hundred and thirty-two million dollars. That's quite a bit of money, isn't it? And we also know six 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 to be the number of the beast that's given to us in Revelation chapter thirteen. And since we are getting close to the end, let me quote to you a little passage in case you're wondering. Some of you may know this already, but while we're on this topic. Now, maybe there is no coincidence here with the the, the number that Solomon had in gold and talents of gold coming in because there's something foreboding about it, no doubt. And and as we go on and and looking into the future yet to us, we know that there is a the the beast who we know is uh, the beast of Revelation 13. We know him as the Antichrist. And he's also going to have a sidekick who we call the false prophet. And it tells us in verse 15, speaking of this false prophet, it says that he was granted to give breath to the image of the beast, meaning the Antichrist, that the image of the Antichrist or the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Again, we're speaking of a time during the midpoint of the tribulation. He causes all, both great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. So that number in relationship with the great wealth of Solomon certainly again has foreboding, foreshadowing implications to it because we're going to find out tonight that Solomon, after all of his wisdom, after all of his fame, after all the money that he obtained, that it began in his wives that he had married, when God said, you know, one wife is good, Solomon. That's the way I planned it from the very beginning. But you want a thousand. You better get a lot of Tylenol, brother. Because these foreign wives had foreign gods And these foreign gods, these wives wanted to worship. And probably like a 
water on sandstone, they would say, Solomon, would you build me a temple for my God? And Solomon's like, I only serve Jehovah, and so should you. And every night, every day. And then finally he caves. But verse 14 says, besides, so he brought in 666 talents of gold every year, besides, in addition, what the traveling merchants and traders brought, and all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon. And King Solomon made 200 large shields. These are full body shields that they would carry out to war. And they, they became really probably more display pieces because they were made of solid gold. And there were 200 of these large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of hammered gold went into each shield. And he also made 300 shields, smaller shields, these more hand-to-hand combat uh, kind of uh, shields of hammered gold. 300 shekels of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Now, even though it says the forest of the house or the house of the forest of Lebanon, this was in actuality a public building in Jerusalem that was made of wood from Lebanon. And it was right there in the temple complex where Solomon had his own palace, etc. And moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. Think of that. And the throne had six steps with a a footstool of gold, which were fastened to the throne. And there were armrests on each side of the place. Now, as, as you read this, imagine this glorious throne in your head. The throne had six steps with a footstool of gold, which were fastened to the throne. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat. And two lions stood beside the armrests. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps, Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. And obviously, there's symbolism in all of these things. There's no coincidences, even in these small, minute details. The 12 lions certainly symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel, just like the stones on the high priest's ephod that he would have. He would have a a breastplate, and there would be 12 stones, one for each of the symbolizing or representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Solomon with the lions, he certainly is prefiguring Jesus in the millennium, whom Revelation calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yes, these lions symbolize not only Judah and Solomon's kingdom, but it also prefigures Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who will even be greater than Solomon in his his, uh, thousand-year reign. We call the millennium, yet future to us. You looking forward to the millennium? I don't know, are you? You you excited about the millennium? I am. I'm looking forward to the millennium, and I'm really looking forward to what's beyond the millennium, when we're free of all of the corruption, and even these old bodies of ours will be in a new body at that time in the millennium. And then into eternity. Notice in verse 20, And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. Think about that. Wow. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram. Once every three years the merchant ships came, bringing gold and silver and ivory and apes and monkeys. This place called uh, Tarshish... um, 
Actually, I don't think I have a slide for that, but it's what you and I would call modern-day Spain, uh, or the area of Spain. That's where Tarshish, we believe, is. So, verse 22, So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God, notice, which God had put in his heart. Notice that it was his wisdom which God put in his heart. Blessed is the man or woman who knows where their gift or their talent comes from. Blessed is the man or woman who gives the praise and thanksgiving to God for all that he gives. I can't boast in any gift that I have, whether it's a musical gift, whatever it may be. I don't care what it is. I can't boast in it because I didn't like receive it. Uh, I didn't, uh, it didn't come from me. In Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says this. He says, For who makes you differ from another? And why do you and, and do you have and, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, we received everything from the hand of God, whether it's something in the physical, whether it's something that God has blessed you with, maybe a, a talent or a gift in some way. He's given you that. And we ought to. It's, very, it's only fitting that we should give praise and glory and honor to him who gave them to us. And may we use them for his glory. That is the perfect use of of everything that we are is to give glory to God, to do it for his purposes. Even the things done around here, I mean, it's simple things. Coming in and painting or whatever it is, whatever, even if it's nothing that's like, you know, some huge thing, believe me, even the smallest thing, God says, you're doing it for me, and I accept that. That is a form of worship, do you understand? And when, when you give of your time, of your heart, of your gifts, your talents, and you give them to God, you give them back to him, the, he's the originator of it, and you give it to him, he wants to bless you in return. I love that. And he's going to reward you for it one day. Isn't that the, the kicker of it all? He gives you the gift, he gives you the will to do it, you do it, and then he rewards you for it. It's almost not fair. Actually, it's not fair. But that's what grace is. Amen? I love that about God. I love what it says in Romans 2, Paul speaking to them. He says, For I say, verse 3 of Romans 12, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So God gives us all of these gifts and when, when the body's working correctly, when it's working rightly, when it's being led by the Spirit, everyone is doing their thing, and, it, and it's not a chore for any one person. It's a beautiful thing. And we see that happening here in this fellowship, and I'm so excited about that. You know, while we were in, while we were, um, in Florida during the Christmas break, there were a group of men whom God put, their, put it on their heart to lay down this floor some had skill and ability in that area. Some had none whatsoever, but they did it together and they had a blast. I wish I were here, honestly. It wasn't like I was laying on a beach somewhere. I wasn't laying on a beach because it was too cold. I would have if it was 85, but uh, there was no beach there <laughs> for that uh, temperature. But notice in verse 24, each man 
brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules at a set rate year by year. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots. Do you remember when we talked about that last week or last time we were together, the problem that Solomon got in amassing horses and chariots? He began to rely less and less upon God and more on his money and his bank account and his physical wherewithal, his army, his armaments, the horses, the chariots, the swords, the bucklers, the shields. 4,000 horses and stalls and and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. And so he reigned over all the kings from the river, uh, from the river, from the river, <laughs> excuse me, of the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. And he made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowland. And they brought horses to Solomon from Egypt and from all lands. And so, you know, we, um, we finish chapter 9 here or almost, chapter 9. And it's interesting that, again, in Chronicles, it doesn't mention Solomon's downfall, but I would like for you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11, because I think it's, it's good to uh, look at again. It's been quite a while, actually, since we've been in 1 Kings. And we're not going to read the whole chapter, but I would like to read the first um, Uh, verses, the first handful of verses. Just the first 13. Notice what it says. So immediately after what we just read in, in, in the chronology of things, it says that the King Solomon, he loved many foreign women. After all of this money, all of this fame, he loved many foreign women. This 1 Kings chapter 11. As well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, and the Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians. He went after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. You know, that's interesting too, isn't it? Because when we think about David and, and his sin, David wasn't an, he wasn't an idolater. David had a problem with lust, and he had a problem with killing people at times. But, I mean, his, his sin was uh, adultery and then uh, murder. But he wasn't an idolater in the sense that he always served the Lord. He made some really bad mistakes. But he wasn't like what Solomon is doing here. David never bowed his knee to Milcom or to Ashtoreth or to any of the other false gods of the land. But Solomon here did. In his old age, his wives turned him. 
And then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is east of Jerusalem, which is on the Mount of Olives today. And for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods, lowercase g. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, Solomon, and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. What an amazing God. Isn't that crazy? And so sometimes our sins affect us and we actually incur the damage, right? Because the soul that sins shall surely die. (laughs) But here, Solomon, his sin is going to affect his son. You remember when David, when David had the sin of counting the people at the end, toward the end of his reign, and God judged him for it? He didn't take David's life, but several thousands of people of Israel died from a plague because of David's disobedience. Now, were they complicit and were they, you know, model citizens and doing everything right? No, I, I doubt it. But the point is, is that God, even in the sin with Bathsheba, God didn't kill David. He deserved to die for his adultery and for his murder. God forgave him. What a merciful God. But who died? That first child from Bathsheba's womb. Someone died. There's a price to pay for sin. And a lot of times it's not you. It's somebody else. Somebody else has to pay the price for your disobedience to God. That doesn't seem fair, does it? But you know, when you're on the receiving end of that forgiveness, you might look at it a little different. But let me suggest to you that someone died in your place who didn't deserve it either. Jesus Christ. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? That, to me, melts me. I, didn't des- I, I deserve death, Lord, based on all the things that I've done. And you're telling me that you will take my sin, all of my sin, even the sins I haven't even committed, and you're going to put them on yourself, and you're going to, Lord God, you are going to judge them in your son once and for all on the cross at Calvary. And yes, that is exactly what happened. A holy sacrifice, unlike the, the bulls and the goats and the sheep, this is the very blood of God, the holy sacrifice totally eclipsing all of those other things, certainly a foreshadowing of those things, but Christ once and for all doing that. What an amazing thing. 
Now look with me in verse 26 of this same chapter in 1 Kings 11 because it's going to bring us right into this next chapter and we may not get to it. We'll see how far we go here. But I want to look at verse 26 uh, through verse 40 just to refresh our memories because as we get into this next chapter in 2 Chronicles chapter 10, there are some things that happened in between that it's good for us to refresh our memories because it'll make a lot more sense when we review what we're looking at right now in verse 26 of 1 Kings 11. Notice it says, Then Solomon's servant, he's a servant, notice, one of Solomon's servants, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zereda, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo, which is a landfill. And he compared the damages, or excuse me, and he repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. And the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph, meaning Ephraim, the northern ten tribes. And now it happened, verse 29, at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way, and he had clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. So now you've got Jeroboam and this prophet in the field. They met each other, and Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him, and he tore it in 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give 10 tribes to you. But he shall not have but excuse me but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel because here's the reason because they have forsaken me and certainly by this time Solomon uh, making all these um idols and and altars for his wives all Israel is looking at this and what are they going to do they're going to follow suit well, it's no big deal now, I guess. Let's just all go back to Egypt. Let's worship these false gods. It's okay. Solomon's doing it, after all. The great king whom God has anointed must be okay now. Maybe God changed his mind. Maybe God doesn't want us anymore. Well, we better go into the arms of these other idols. Because they have forsaken me, God says, and they worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments, as did David, his father. However, I will not make a whole, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, Jeroboam, ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. Do you see the faithfulness of God here? Even in judgment, he's going to allow Jeroboam to be king over these northern ten tribes, and then Judah and Benjamin, but Judah, uh, you know, uh, 
Rehoboam is going to take, uh, be the king because of the promise that God made to David that upon his throne ultimately would sit Christ, the Messiah. And God was faithful to his promise, even though Solomon was blowing it big time. Remember that God is the promise keeper. I, I don't really keep promises that well. I try to, but I don't always. But God is. He goes, into a son I'll give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. The city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires and you shall be the king over Israel. And then it shall be if. There's a conditional phrase. There's an if then statement here. Remember what those are. Then it shall be if you, Jeroboam, if you heed all that I command you, walk in all my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then, if you do that, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you, and I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. And there is the grace and the mercy of God again. Solomon, therefore, sought to kill Jeroboam. I mean, at this point, Solomon, as, he, as he's getting older and he's falling into idolatry, and he hears about God, this prophecy this, that God is giving to Ahijah to tell Jeroboam, word gets back to him, and he's like, puts a contract on his head. He sends out the boys. Shows up at his house with a rose. <laughs> Wants to take him out. But Jeroboam arose and he fled to Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Until the death of Solomon. Incredible, isn't it? Now in verse 29, to go back to Second Chronicles uh, chapter uh, 9, we're going we're to finish up this chapter before we go on. We'll finish with the death of Solomon here. Second Chronicles chapter 9. So now, after all of that, after Solomon's falling into idolatry, now, I want to share something with you, and most of you know this already. Solomon, after all of this, he wrote the book of Lamentations. I would encourage you to, um, uh, Ecclesiastes, excuse me. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And he basically the, 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 model of, the, the motto of the whole thing is, all is emptiness without God. I would encourage you to read Ecclesiastes. It's the testimony of a man who had everything given to him. The greatest, I mean, there was nothing. You and I, when we think of what he, what God gave to him, what God did with him, it was incredible. I mean, not only did he have all of the wisdom, I mean, the guy was incredible. And God gifted him. And not only that, but he gave him all the money. He allowed it. He gave some to him, but it wasn't enough, so he got more. But he became so wealthy, it became ridiculous, and then he got soft. And then the wives started, you know, massaging his heart. And finally he caves in. And then after this mess that he's created, thank God the Lord brings, brings him back to himself. And Ecclesiastes is the testimony. You can read it yourself. Solomon knew very well what it was like to be at the heights and now at the depths. And God was going to raise him up and continue to encourage 
Forgiving him, yes, but things would not be the same. Verse 29. Let's see here. We'll just do the first last two verses and we'll call it a night, okay? Let's look at verse 29. It says, Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, first and last, are they not written in the book of Nathan the prophet? In the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite, and in the visions of Iddo the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nebat. What's interesting is the parallel account of this in 1 Kings chapter 11. I'd encourage you to read all of 1 Kings 11. It also mentions that these were that these things were written in the book of the Acts of Solomon. Now, you know, when we look at these, the book of the Acts of Solomon or the, the book of Nathan the prophet, the prophecy of Ahijah, the, the, the visions of Iddo the seer, we don't have those documents. Some of them are in the Bible, but God, by the Holy Spirit, saw fit not to, they'd never been found, but it's because evidently we didn't need them. This was enough for us to understand the point that God was trying to drive home. And so Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years. 40 years, this reign of Solomon from 970 to 930 B.C. 40 years, just like his father David, 70, or excuse me, he, lived, he reigned for 40 years, just like Israel's first king, Saul, 40 years Verse 31, then Solomon rested with his fathers, meaning he died, and was buried in the city of David his father, which is Zion. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. And next week we're going we're gonna to look at uh, chapter 10, and we're going to see God doing exactly what he told um, the prophet who had, who had met uh, Jeroboam out in the field. Ahijah. God's going to fulfill that promise, and it's going to be a painful thing, but God allowed Solomon to live until his death, and then when his son takes over, Rehoboam, one of, Ser one of Solomon's servants now is going to be at odds with his son Rehoboam, and the kingdom is going to split, and God told Jeroboam that this was what's going to happen, but he would do it until he would do it after Solomon had passed from the scene for the sake of David, the man after God's own heart. Isn't that incredible? For the sake of David. You know, I think about how much God loved David, and it doesn't mean that God, you know, loved David any more than any one person in a, in a sense, but he, he loved David because David was, um, even though he made some really horrible mistakes, and like many of us, he, he, he confessed them, he, he was forgiven for those things. He was never quite the same again, but he, he learned so much about God, and he learned so much about the grace of God, and we're the beneficiaries, aren't we, of the Psalms that talk of David's heartache, and what a great Psalm it is. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 you know, what great psalms there are when someone falls into sexual sin or in adultery. To read those psalms of David and to, to know that there's someone who has gone before you, unfortunately, that's done the same thing and even done worse, and yet God can forgive. 
Yes, he can. For the sake of David. God is a great promise keeper, and he's made some great promises to you and I, hasn't he? I would encourage you to look at those promises and, 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 and read them and say, Lord, these are promises. And take them to the bank. Cash them. <laughs> and let the Spirit of God minister to your heart. And may you love him the more for it. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, as we read the, the account here tonight, Lord, it is sobering, Father, because most of us, many of us think, well, if I only had this, if I only had that, I wouldn't be in such a problem. I wouldn't do this thing if I only had this. And Lord, there's so much about that, God. And, and the truth of the matter is, you've proven time and time again through the word of God, throughout history, that Lord, it, reg- it doesn't matter whether how much or how little we have, this old nature needs to die. It needs to, be, it needs to be crucified. We need to be born again. And so Father, I pray that tonight, Lord, that, that we would give ourselves to you 100% again. And Lord, if there are any here tonight or in earshot of this message, that they would give their hearts to you that they'd be finished with this old nature that they have been coddling for many years. Lord, would you please do that work in us? And, uh, and for those of us who do know you, excuse me, Lord, would you renew that, that fervor, that desire, that love for you again, that we would see you face to face every day through the, the written word of God, And Lord, that we would surrender our lives to you and that we would just bask in the radiance of the glow of the almighty God and that it would change us forever. Lord, do that with us tonight and tomorrow and the next day. And Lord, thank you for the the examples that we have here, even the bad examples at times, Lord. they, They really do encourage us. Even though it's very hard to read, it's hard to see, and it's certainly it's hard to live through. So, Lord, uh, help us tonight and just um, set a new spring in our step and fill us with your spirit tonight and give us a good night's rest, Lord, and wake us refreshed for the day tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great night. Be encouraged and be blessed.